Last weekend, I attended ToyCon NJ, one of the largest and best shows in New Jersey. ToyCon is a biannual show that has run for almost a decade and has been one of the highlights for modern and vintage collectors in the tri-state area. Debuting in 2014, ToyCon was held at the Police Athletic League Center in the northern part of the state, in the town of Parsippany, New Jersey. Vendor tables filled two large gymnasiums and a smaller fitness room. My friend Ryan Humblehorder usually set up at a table in the long hallway where he would sell loose Star Wars figures and other vintage relics from the 70s and 80s, and attendees always swarmed his table as a result. And wherever you walked within the PAL Center, you were surrounded by toys, tables, and collectors in search of collectibles. ToyCon continued twice a year in Parsippany until the pandemic hit. The promoter, Joe Viteri, moved it to a different police athletic league building, this time in Wayne, New Jersey, just down the street from where the monthly Wayne Toy Show was held. And ToyCon remained in Wayne for the next two years. This year, however, with the pandemic finally in the rearview mirror, ToyCon returned to Parsippany. And while it was so nice to be at the original location again, so much has changed. I wanted to share some of the insights I pulled from being there in person. I wanted to give you an idea of what ToyCon, and to a larger degree, toy shows, are really like. This is a look at five Star Wars and collecting trends gleaned from my trip to ToyCon NJ. This is a Saturday trip back to Parsippany, New Jersey, in pursuit of the joy a toy show brings. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Before Disney released The Force Awakens in theaters, ToyCon NJ premiered as a multi-day toy show that pulled in some of the best vendors in the tri-state area. I was fortunate to have attended that first iteration, and it was such an amazing experience that I didn't miss a single ToyCon for the next eight years. That Saturday, I came home with a blue snaggletooth. I had also met a gentleman named Jerry who had hoarded massive amounts of toys since the 1960s, which he kept in his basement. ToyCon was the first show he ever did to sell a small portion of his collection, but what he offered that weekend was a bounty of collectibles, and his prices were incredibly reasonable. 
I purchased carded Star Wars figures from Jerry, like an Empire Strikes Back Leia Bespin and Yoda, and Barada and Amanaman and Luke Stormtrooper from the Power of the Force line. And since then, I've tried to show up as early as possible, paying the cost of the early bird admission, or even helping friends set up the day before, just to bask a little longer in the goodness of a true toy show. Those early toy cons had moments of magic. I remember walking past a dealer's table, seeing a Kenner item, and asking him if he had any other vintage Star Wars figures for sale. He looked down at some of the boxes at his feet, looked back up at me, and smiled. I have a box of stuff here I haven't put out yet, he said. And he added to my utter shock, you'll be the first one to go through it. Heaving it into my open arms, which raised involuntarily at the sight of it, I flipped the flaps back like a child diving into a Christmas gift. And what a gift it was. Return of the Jedi figures, a sealed speeder bike, and a carded made-in-Mexico Darth Vader were some of the surprises waiting for me. And the best piece in the lot, which to this day is one of my favorite finds from Toy-Con, was an Empire Strikes Back Snowtrooper on its debut card back with a crystal clear bubble, unpunched and in near perfect condition. I purchased a set of 1985 Power of the Force loose figures from my friend Rob Bruce, ones that had been removed from their blisters years earlier and were put away for decades, looking as fresh as they did when they were still available on store shelves. Special vintage Star Wars items would pop up at each show, and you never knew what was waiting at each table. Carded figures, international items, loose figures and accessories, displays, and many of the Lucasfilm licensed creations made Toy-Con well worth the trip every single time. Toy-Con leaned heavily into vintage toys. The promoters were vintage fans and collectors at heart, and knew what attendees sought during their weekend hunts. The fact that the show was only held twice a year made it even more special, and many vendors specifically put special pieces aside to showcase and to sell at Toy-Con. But the Toy-Con vendors appealed to fans of all ages, and offered a wonderful selection of modern toys especially for younger fans who grew up with the prequels, Pokemon, and more obscure lines like Dino Riders, Street Sharks, and Food Fighters. Each show had a healthy mix of collectibles from many eras, covering more than 50 years of action figures, playsets, comics, Disney Anna, cards, and other ephemera connected to the stories and characters we love. And for Star Wars collectors the biannual Toy-Con morphed into something more than a toy show. It became a hub for members from the various regional collecting clubs to meet up, shop the show together, and then head to a local restaurant for a group meal. One of my favorite trips was in the spring of 2021. After facing a tougher winter due to the pandemic, the world began to open again and just in time for 30 collectors from the Empire State Club, the Northeast Club, the D.C. Club, and the Pennsylvania Club to hang out at Toy-Con in Wayne, New Jersey, and then to take over a pizza parlor for a few hours to continue the celebration of being together again. Last fall, I missed my first Toy-Con in eight years. The night before the show, I came to terms with the fact that I had come down with something and was not well enough to attend. 
but I was devastated. So when this past weekend's event finally arrived, I was ready to return to ToyCon once again. This ToyCon was somewhat disappointing. It was certainly nice to be back to the Parsippany venue again, and to return to a special location that was tied to a number of my pre-pandemic collector memories. But I had assumed that many of the regulars who usually make the trip to ToyCon would be in attendance. I was disappointed to learn that I was one of the only collectors from my circles to show up during the first few hours. But like most collecting events, I was not alone. I was joined by R5D4 collector and UP fanatic Adam Marks. Adam is a fellow Empire State Club member, and he is the creator of the popular Garbage Shoot Droids cards, which pay homage to Star Wars and to the original 1980s Garbage Pail Kids cards. This year's ToyCon would simply be a toy show for the two of us. No collector's meetup and no collector's lunch this time. As for the show itself, it was an interesting experience. Adam and I did two full laps over the course of about two hours before we both decided we had explored everything we needed to see. Adam and I were both surprised at how quickly we had experienced what ToyCon had to offer. He remarked to me that we had basically viewed everything in half the time compared to previous ToyCon shows. My disappointment was not so much with the show. Joe Viteri and his team always do a wonderful job setting it up and giving fans and collectors a memorable day out. And some of my heightened expectations, like who would show up, went far beyond the show's control. After all, these final weeks of spring are littered with graduations and parties, as well as vacations and other toy shows and events. This was the first post-pandemic toy show I had attended since the current administration ended the public health emergency declaration related to COVID-19 back in May. But it was one of many over the past year since the hype of the collectible market began to wane. So today, I wanted to share some of the trends that I observed from this show. The trends relate to the toy shows, collectibles in general, and more specifically, the current state of Star Wars items. So without further ado, find a nice cozy spot, grab your favorite beverage, and let's discuss the trends gleaned from my trip to the spring ToyCon NJ show in Parsippany, New Jersey. Trend number one, a toy show's early bird kit. The first topic I wanted to mention was the early bird shopping. ToyCon opened to the general public at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, and the cost of admission was $20 for anyone over the age of 11. The toy show was free for children 10 and under, which is definitely an enticing offer for families. But ToyCon invites early bird shoppers to enter an hour earlier at 9 a.m., and charges $25 for this perk. With a toy show like ToyCon, I'd always recommend the early bird option, because if you're hunting for Star Wars items, 
The really good ones are likely to be snatched up before the regular admission ticket holders walk through the doors at 10 o'clock. I had arrived 20 minutes before the show opened to the early bird crowd. At past shows, the line would be wrapped around the building, so I didn't know how long I'd have to wait to get in. I was surprised to see that the line only stretched the length of the front of the building. I'm sure attendees continued to file in over the next hour, but the traffic within the aisles felt lighter than at previous toy cons. I'm assuming a large chunk of the early bird shoppers were there to purchase Mythic Legion's toys. Mythic Legions is a figure line designed and produced by Four Horsemen Studios, a company local to the region. The toys are part of the fantasy line with customizable and swappable parts, and are beautifully rendered. And when the Four Horsemen show up to sell the newest figures directly at ToyCon, they are always greeted by an enthusiastic horde of collectors and buyers. I was curious to see if a $25 charge, or even a $20 charge as an entrance fee, would affect the turnout in any way. During the collecting frenzy of the pandemic, people would pay almost any price to attend a show. First, after being cooped up at home, the chance to be out and among people at a toy show fully justified the price of admission. And second, with collectibles being so hot for so long, vendors were showing up with some rare and incredible pieces for sale, and attendees did not want to miss out on them. It seemed like no matter what someone was willing to pay for something, there was always someone else who would be willing to pay a 30% premium on that same item. It was a true frenzy in every sense of the word, just a delirious flurry of scooping up whatever seemed to be remotely desirable with a chance to profit wildly from these ventures. And those who simply wanted to drive in the right-hand lane and collect items at the pre-pandemic pace were often left shaking their heads as they stood and watched from the side of the road. But now that the frenetic pace had settled and a lot of the breathless buying had dissipated, Collectibles weren't as in demand, and the need to be at the show during the early bird hour may have lost some of its original appeal. So while Adam and I toured the vendor tables during the early bird hour, I asked some of my vendor friends how they were doing. The general consensus was that early bird sales were slow, with some vendors still waiting for their first sale even into ToyCon's second hour. Many remained hopeful, suggesting the show would get busier into the afternoon. The idea piqued my curiosity, because in my experience, attendance flowed into the building in two main waves. The first was the crowded early bird waiting to crash through the doors the moment they opened. The second was the group of more casual shoppers, sometimes those with families, who would roll in sometime in the afternoon and would stroll through the show not concerned about what they missed earlier. And so again, I wondered if the higher prices of toy shows, combined with a diminished interest in collectibles, equated to a smaller pool of early bird shoppers. It's really hard to say, because I was focusing on each table that was in front of me, in between talking to Adam, but it felt different than previous toy cons and shows that occurred during the pandemic. So maybe it wasn't that there were fewer people than normal, but maybe fewer people than at the height of the collecting frenzy. Or maybe with life settling back into a familiar rhythm, toy shows did too.
trend number two. Toy shows in 2023, a current collectibles cantina. I found the selection of vendors to be particularly interesting because a shift has taken place. If I had to describe toy shows from a decade ago, I would say they were much more vintage-heavy in their offerings, and they were usually filled with dealers who had been setting up at shows for a long time. From time to time, you'd see a few younger sellers become regulars, bringing an entrepreneurial energy that was different, and sometimes a little more aggressive than the usual vendor rhythms. But the collecting boom of the past few years changed everything. The generational shift in vendors was less of a transition and more of a burst. A new pool of vendors entered the hobby, a new series of amateur hustlers. They were caffeinated business people, flipping items on social media while they were making sales in person. They stocked expensive toys in acrylic cases, and the desirable comics of the moment were always slabbed and graded. They had cases of the latest Hasbro figures, selling them as quickly as their pre-orders arrived. They had raided their local Targets and Walmarts, acting as the expensive middlemen because they had the products you should be able to get, but couldn't find. For some of them, familiarity with what they were selling wasn't really important. It was more about knowing which variants were the most desirable and brought in the most money. And most shows I visited during the pandemic had a mix of the old-school regulars and the newer ones, who tended to introduce more non-toy collectibles to the toy shows, like comics, cards, and video games. Toy show attendees were presented with a smorgasbord of memorabilia, as varied as their interests ran, and more exciting than ever in a buzzing and budding collector's market. Toy shows in 2023 are a much different story. And for some reason, I could see the shift more clearly at ToyCon than at any previous show I've attended. Maybe because the shows of the past year have reflected a community and a hobby in a state of flux, a transition that was still playing out with each passing month. Maybe it was that I hadn't attended a show in a while, or entered the PAL Center with certain expectations. But the reality of the change was visible during my tour through the ToyCon gymnasiums. I'd like to point out that ToyCon had some incredible vendors this year. The show has always carried a reputation for delivering on the quality of both its vendors and its offerings. One of my favorite sections in the entire show was the far right wall at the front of the first gymnasium. A collector friend who specializes in 80s memorabilia had two tables filled with treasure from that decade. He had merchandise from the sitcom ALF. Star Wars assorted items from a collection he recently purchased, rows of loose He-Man figures, memorable board games, plush dolls, and many more items from a truly unforgettable era. Across from him was another vendor with vertical shelves stocked with action figures. And the show contained a solid number of tables worth exploring, with some that offered so many items, you'd see things during your second trip through the show that you may have missed in your first pass. But what really stood out to me was the lack of vintage vendors overall, and a shift not only toward modern items, but to the very latest collectibles. This is a major distinction. These tables are sparser in their offerings. They're cleaner and neater, but lack character. 
Many of the items for sale appear to be case-fresh, because they are. They're mostly convention exclusives, online pre-orders, or were pulled from shelves in the past weeks or months. Vintage inventory is very hard to get. Since the pandemic, there's been more competition among professional and amateur buyers. And many of the vendors sold the bulk of what they had during the pandemic, when prices were too good to turn down. And now, restocking with vintage and even modern items is a challenge. There are fewer pieces out there, and the prices to acquire them often leave little room for any profit. I think it's important to understand this point, not because the focus should be on sales or vendors, but it helps to explain why many of the toy shows have the exact same appearance and the same type of collectibles now. Very simply, it's easier to load up on the latest collectibles than it is to get vintage and modern memorabilia. Most of us attend shows not to purchase what we see on shelves presently at places like Target, but to find the items of our respective childhoods, or to add to the focus runs in our current collections. So the lack of affordable, available vintage and modern items plays a big part in shaping what a toy show is today. And this isn't specifically about ToyCon, but about toy shows in general. For this season of the podcast, one of my goals was to analyze the toy show experience, to better understand collectors and the hobby, and to gain a clearer perspective of the current collecting market. As a community, we went through a years-long era of a collecting whirlwind, and now a new era has arrived. And one of the biggest takeaways so far is that while the toy show experience is still a great one, there seems to be a particular type of toy show that is becoming rarer, but is thriving more than ever because the demand and the need are there. The Xenia Toy Show had 10,000 visitors in a weekend. Xenia and Chicago's Kane County attract thousands of visitors because they're more like flea markets than toy shows. You'll see your standard vendors at each, but a number of sellers are people who don't usually do toy shows but are clearing out their attics or basements. True discovery is still present. The thrill of the hunt is an unbridled one. Unexplored territory remains waiting for us at these types of shows. And I think that is a crucial element that is slowly seeping from the current toy show experience. As collectors, we always justify our trips to toy shows by saying, you never know what will turn up. And that is true, but I wonder if it's becoming less so, especially if more and more vendors are raiding their local department stores for toys and collectibles and have everything cataloged and priced according to eBay's bolstered levels. Still, what I love more than anything about a toy show is that its vendors are appealing to hundreds and thousands of individuals with an endless array of interests. And on a Saturday, as Adam and I seek vintage Star Wars figures... There were so many people around us looking for totally different items from all different eras. The magic of a toy show like ToyCon is that it is a treasure trove, offering the hope that today is the day in which you and I find that special piece that means something to each of us, whatever it may be. And I hope that aspect and that feeling never go away. ToyCon finds its balance in its mix of vintage, modern, and current collectibles. 
and picking vendors that can add to the magic of the toy show experience is what will separate this New Jersey toy show from its peers. Trend number three, Darth Vader, the lack of vintage Star Wars. At this year's Toy Con, vintage carded Star Wars figures popped up as frequently as Luke did in The Force Awakens. When Adam and I entered the first gymnasium, the first table we visited had three or four. The one that immediately caught my attention was a Leia Hoth figure on an Empire Strikes Back card back. The bubble was yellow, but had no dents or blemishes, and the figure looked great. I had come to the show with the intention of adding at least one carded figure to my collection, and this Leia was one I would definitely consider purchasing. I had checked the back to see the price. It was $400, which was a little high, but I knew the seller probably had a little room to negotiate. I was expecting the price to be something ridiculous and was shocked to see it was closer to Earth than it was to the moon. Looking closer at the card back, it had a number of issues. The bottom corner had slight creasing like it had been dropped, and there were slight creases known as veins running through the center of the card near Leia's photo. I shrugged, placed it back on its shelf, and inspected the other carded figures. They had condition issues as well, and none of them interested me enough to make an offer. What started out as a great sign that vintage Star Wars collectibles in their original packaging had come to Parsippany disappeared quickly. I think there were no more than ten carded Kenner figures at the show that day. But this is not to fall Toy-Con. This is simply the norm now. And some of the regular dealers who focused solely on Star Wars were not there this time, and their absences were truly felt. Ryan Humble Hoarder has always been the guy to see about loose vintage Star Wars figures at Toy-Con, and Art Lou always stocks the most impressive array of rarer figures, along with a healthy assortment of carded and international Star Wars items. Without them, Toy-Con simply had fewer options for Star Wars collectors. Most toy shows I've attended in the past year have followed a similar pattern, offering fewer and fewer vintage Star Wars items. And when they do make an appearance, the price tags are often unchanged from the peak pandemic months. Or they're used to draw people to a vendor's table, and the vendor will only part with them if they get an offer they can't refuse. Loose vintage Star Wars figures were more widely available throughout both gymnasiums. Most were either individually bagged or in plastic containers, and some of them came with their accessories. However, the prices of these figures were strangely consistent from table to table, like each vendor had checked out the recent completed eBay listings and went with the most expensive results. For example, Jawas, complete with their cloak and blaster, were selling for $75. This may be the going rate on eBay, But at that price, they seem to draw very little interest at a show. 
When it comes to Star Wars figures, sellers know they've been hot over the past few years and are still desirable, and they want top dollar for each item. And maybe some of the Jawas sold at some point during the weekend. But I've been to too many shows over the past few years where I see the same overpriced figures return to the same tables again and again at the next one. If you're looking for vintage items beyond the Kenner toys, though, a show like ToyCon can be a lot of fun and quite rewarding. Things like promotional glasses from Burger King, birthday party items, books, displays, and various other memorabilia from the 1970s and 1980s are often less in demand among a larger audience, and you can find some true gems for good prices. Some of the best tables at the show were ones that had a variety of vintage items, where the reward for spending time exploring each bin and box was finding something unusual branded with a Star Wars logo. I've discussed this with other collectors on the podcast, but over the past year, we've seen a shift in what vendors are bringing to shows. For a while, collectors were frequenting shows in search of high-end, rare Star Wars pieces. Now, smaller ticketed items draw more attention at the shows, and fewer people are willing to spend on the expensive ones. So that may equate to sales of Return of the Jedi notebooks or eraser sets, rather than a carded Leia Hoth. Finding vintage Star Wars toys and getting a good deal is a lot trickier now. The vendors know what they have, if they have any Star Wars figures left at this point, and they want top dollar for them. But if you collect Star Wars beyond the toys, you may do very well at a show like ToyCon. Trend number four, modern Star Wars figures in the clutches of the Sarlacc. At ToyCon NJ, the vintage collection and Black Series figures garnered little attention, even at closeout prices. I have to say, this wasn't surprising. Star Wars is in a little bit of a rut right now. With no new films until 2026 at the earliest now, and with many of the Disney Plus series being disappointing or simply forgettable, the premium figure lines have lost their luster with fans. Introduced in 2010, the vintage collection soon became the premier three and three quarter inch figure line for Hasbro's Star Wars universe. The card backs were throwbacks to the Kenner era and the hyper-articulated figures were the most detailed and most screen-accurate ones available. The Black Series collection premiered in 2013, offering 6-inch versions of Star Wars heroes, villains, droids, and creatures. These larger figures were just as impressive as the ones from the Vintage collection, and quickly developed a following among collectors. Both lines experienced skyrocketing demand throughout the pandemic, it was nearly impossible to find the new releases at retail as they were quickly snatched up 
and often resold, and collectors and dealers ordered multiple cases of each upcoming wave, piling up the pre-orders at Hasbro and other online shops. But dealers and resellers seemed to become too greedy as the years progressed, buying off too many cases of these newer releases, and expecting a rabid and robust audience to continue to feed on every figure wave that arrived. But very suddenly, interest dried up. And this past weekend, as I ventured from table to table, I saw the remnants of this once-bustling side of our hobby. My friend Andrew is a dealer of both the Vintage Collection and the Black Series. His prices are very fair, and on Saturday morning, he had slashed many of them even further to entice shoppers to buy some of the figures from these modern lines. I asked Andrew and a few other vendors why the Hasbro figures from the previous year or so were no longer selling. They all seemed to have the same answer. Hasbro continued to release too many figures, overwhelming collectors, and possibly turning them off as they tried to keep up. I hadn't considered the sheer volume of releases as the main deterrent, but I believe that was only part of the issue. A collector fatigue had certainly settled in, but was compounded by the lack of funds, the current economic climate, and the effect of inflation, and the fact that many of the newer Star Wars content contained mediocre stories whose staying power simply burned out after one viewing. And now, at toy shows, there were tons of unsold vintage collection and Black Series figures waiting to be purchased. And while Andrew had an impressive variety of the modern Hasbro figures spanning more than a decade, I noticed that some of the other vendors were selling the same newer waves. This is likely due to the fact that they were available during the pandemic, if you were able to score them the day the pre-orders dropped. And now, if you were looking for a particular vintage collection figure at Toy-Con, a number of the recent ones could be purchased for lower than their original retail prices. I recall seeing the Clone Wars Season 7 Ahsoka selling for about $10. And I got the sense that $20 or higher, Black Series figures rarely generated any interest at the show. While these modern figures are not as beloved as the original vintage ones, I would liken this era to what the Kenner figures went through during the second half of the 1980s. Larger interest is waning for these toys, and too many of them are available now but I think they will slowly begin to become desirable again over time. Not just because of the characters they represent, but because they will always be tied to the exciting era of collecting during the pandemic years. For now, if you're seeking a particular Black Series or Vintage Collection figure, you may want to wait until the next toy show. You may get a really good deal at a place like ToyCon NJ. Trend number five, Star Wars and toy shows are about families. One of the notable and wonderful progressions in toy shows has been the rise of families in attendance. And this was evident at ToyCon NJ. The vintage toy shows of yesteryear catered to hobbyists, 
and in some ways, a show would be an event for individuals who would find a community in the company of one another. And while this is true for many, I believe we're seeing more families attending and shopping shows together. The emergence of this trend happened for a few reasons. The collecting explosion of the pandemic crossed generations and affected almost every type of collectible imaginable. Comics, cards, toys, dolls, electronics, video games, you name it, and it drew an audience. And as a result, toy shows slowly morphed into their own versions of conventions, offering much more than simply toys. Suddenly, comic tables crept into the room, and the nostalgia of Pokemon cards ignited an entire generation. Customized and customizable figures grew in popularity. Autographs and photo ops with celebrities became highlights. Things that might not be on your radar were suddenly piping hot, desirable among a younger audience. And when all of it is in one location, it becomes a destination for the entire family. A show like ToyCon is no exception. It offered a variety of memorabilia that not only appealed to the children of decades past, but to the ones of the current decade as well. I know I've mentioned the pandemic a lot, but I think it largely affected the toy show and collecting experience. Collectors and toy enthusiasts were cooped up during the quarantine, and they and their families needed an outlet. A toy show like ToyCon became more than a toy show. It was a day out, to cast off the worries of the real world, and to do some treasure hunting, no matter your age or your interest. And you could make the argument that over the previous year or so, it's become less about the items and more about the moments. And if your family is up for the challenge, what better way to spend a day as a collector than sifting through boxes and tables with them? I spoke to Adam later that day once I had returned home. He told me he went back to ToyCon in the afternoon, this time with his son. The two of them toured the show together, and he had the opportunity to see ToyCon through his son's eyes. At the end of their time there, they purchased a box of Star Wars Signature Series cards and landed a special Darth Maul card autographed by legendary voice actor Sam Witwer. In Star Wars and at toy shows, family makes the experiences even more meaningful. Trend number six, a quick but interesting observation. As Adam and I were walking through the gymnasiums that Saturday morning, a friend said something to us that stuck with me. As I mentioned previously, the early bird hour was somewhat slow as far as sales. And this friend said, I wish ToyCon had occurred in April instead of June. The further it gets into the year, the less remaining money people have to spend on toys. Now, it certainly differs from show to show, and for a variety of reasons. But after being stuck indoors throughout the holidays and into the winter on the East Coast, collectors may give earlier spring shows an advantage. Leftover money from holiday gifts, tax returns, and a frothing desire to scoop up toys may culminate in a spending blitz. 
And with money getting tighter for many, those spending blitzes may happen fewer times and earlier in the year. But a June Toy-Con has been a standard for most of the past decade, disrupted only by the pandemic. And I truly believe that offering desirable collectibles at fair prices will propel even the stingiest collectors to make a few purchases, regardless of when a show takes place. I didn't really find anything for my collection at this year's Toy-Con NJ. And that's okay. I'm very selective about what I bring into my collection, and part of the thrill of going to a show is the chance to find something special. And while I'm sure that happened for a lot of the shoppers that day, it just wasn't my turn. One of the things Adam pointed out to me as we walked through the show was that each of us had been toy hunting for many years now. And what excites us at this point in our respective collecting journeys are more specific and much rarer pieces. He reminded me that for many of us, our early years of collecting felt more exciting because everything was new to us. There was so much we didn't know, or had never seen, or hadn't explored at that point. But for many walking through the doors of Toy-Con, that newness is vibrantly present. That overwhelming joy at traversing yet uncharted terrain was occurring all around us. I remember those moments, and I'm thankful to say that so many of them happened over the past decade at Toy-Con NJ. And I'm thankful the show has been a success, and that more and more people have experienced it, and have built special moments for themselves. But I'm also thankful to know that we have many more Toy-Cons to look forward to as collectors and as Star Wars fans. I have a special seed of an idea for the next one, and if it works out, it will certainly make the fall show very memorable. My goal with this episode was to share some of the toy show trends I noticed from attending Toy-Con NJ. But as I explored these ideas and trends, I began to see larger ones that helped me to understand what the collector's market and the larger state of collecting looks like in a post-pandemic world. Now that we are halfway through the year, I feel like I finally have a grasp on where we stand. Maybe it took six months of exploration and conversations. Or maybe our hobbies are starting to come back to Earth again after circling the stratosphere for such a long time. But I hope that this episode and these toy show recaps have helped you to gain perspective as well. And I hope Star Wars and collecting remain fun and rewarding experiences for you. After all, they're hobbies, and a hobby is supposed to enrich our life by bringing us personal joy. And if these episodes add to that joy, then it means I'm doing what I set out to achieve. Here's to our next adventure together. Thank you for coming along for this one on Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Mm-hmm.